Hello, Capital Region. This is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine broadcasting on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady. From the Sanctuary of Independent Media in Troy, New York, I'm Jody. And I'm Sina. Tonight we begin by hearing New York State politics coverage from Dave Lombardo, host of the Capitol Press Room on WCNY. And after that, Hudson Valley Community College professor Tamu Chambers is interviewed about her 365 days a year black history educational video project. And later on, we hear how Amy Wagner turned her pandemic baking into her business, roly-poly buns and stuff. And then Reclaiming the Narrative is a weekly program at WXIR Community Radio in Rochester, New York. We talk with producers Darren, uh, sorry, Darian Lehman and uh, Leslie Hannon. And we end tonight by speaking with Jessica Bowen, the Community Engagement Coordinator at Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. And now, some headlines. Albany County was notified Monday that it is getting 500 shots of the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine, Exec- uh, County Executive Dan McCoy said. The county will likely aim to distribute the Johnson & Johnson doses uh, to homebound individuals because the one-dose vaccine would be easier to administer to that population than the Pfizer or Medina's two-dose series. Moderna, sorry. The Times Union reports that police reform advocates are concerned about how the Saratoga Springs area is moving forward to adopt reforms. The week city, uh, this week's city council meeting agenda has no mention of police reform, upsetting advocates who noted that the city is facing an April 1st state deadline to enact reforms. The council later told the Times Union that meeting that public meeting will be held on March 23rd and 31st and the reform plan possibly passing only hours before the April 1st bid deadline. In Schenectady, the Gazette reports that the city council delayed acting on the mayor's police reform proposals after many at a recent public hearing said that they did not go far enough. A common council uh, a common concern expressed was to have mental health professional accompany the police. Councilwoman Marion uh, Porterfield sought more diversity among the command staff during peer review process. In an, if an officer is accused of racial discrimination, she said, the review should include someone who may see the incident differently. Erica Brockmeyer, a 2003 Schenectady High School graduate and former program director of the Schenectady Boys and Girls Club, is seeking a seat on the Schenectady School Board in May. She presently works at Emma Willard in Troy. Samuel Rose is the other announced candidate for two open seats. With the recently passed COVID relief package waiving taxes on canceled student loan debt, Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer said Monday there's no reason President Joe Biden shouldn't immediately erase $50,000 in student loan debt from each borrower. Uh, I'm sorry, in student loans from each borrower. Biden, however, has supported canceling $10,000 of student loan debt for all borrowers all borrowers and the rest of the debt for people who went to public or historically black colleges and universities and earned less than $125,000 a year. The state Senate is pre- uh, preparing to examine Governor, Governor Cuomo's COVID-19 policies at group home facilities for people with developmental disabilities, which have mirrored those of nursing homes. A major concern was that they are directed to accept COVID-positive patients. Critics uh, contended that such directives unnecessarily exposed the most vulnerable New Yorkers to COVID-19 causing additional deaths. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is local news produced by the community for the community, coming to you from the Sanctuary of Independent Media in Troy, New York. This program is kept on air 
uh, by many volunteers and sanctuary sustainers. Thank you. To hear all of the stories on today's program, visit mediasanctuary.org. To send comments or suggestions, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Our first story tonight, David Lombardo, host of the, of the Capitol Press Room at WCNY, provides insight on New York State Governor Cuomo's favorability amid calls to resign. What to expect from the state assembly's impeachment investigation and the state's capacity or lack thereof to properly investigate sexual harassment allegations against elected officials. HMM's Spencer Keeble brings us this story. Hi, I'm Spencer Keeble with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on WOOC, and I'm elated to be joined by David Lombardo today. He's the host of the Capitol Press Room on WCNY Radio and the former host of the Times Union podcast, Capitol Confidential. So Dave, you've been covering state politics for a decade now, uh, which is about how long Andrew Cuomo has been the governor of New York. Uh, There have been some news stories recently about the governor's rise in popularity in response to his coronavirus pandemic briefings and overall response, and then his his more recent political downfall amid multiple sexual harassment allegations and other scandals. You just noted on Twitter that His favorability, according to Siena polls, is about where it was last year before the pandemic. So are you surprised that it isn't further down from where it was a year ago? I think that where we're at right now is kind of the governor's baseline, you know, his floor. Uh, You know, you you mentioned that Siena poll and 43 percent is the lowest his favorability has ever been, period. I mean, it's a number that he hit uh, in 2019 a couple times. And so... When I think about it, I think about it in that, you know, there are a group of supporters of the governor in New York, 43% of them by some account, and they're with him through thick or thin, whether it's the Moreland Commission or whatever scandal. I think, though, that as this story develops, we might see that number chip away and that he's going to potentially, you know, go into the basement when it comes to his favorability. I think there is a potential to see that number go even further down. You had a couple interviews recently about the first and last impeachment in New York and uh, the potential for an impeachment to happen in the assembly uh, now. So what's some info you gathered from those interviews about impeachment? The thing that I took away from the 1913 impeachment was that it was really politically motivated. There were people in power establishment in Albany that the incumbent governor, William Sulzer, had, for lack of a better word, pissed off. You know, he had turned his back on their political machine and was trying to, you know, launch his own political machine. And that was really the impetus for him going down. I don't think this is so much motivated by politics. I think this is really motivated by a sincere desire to do I guess what's best or to have leadership that reflects our best values. And that's really what I see as really the stark difference here. One of the other things I thought was interesting was there was a month delay in that impeachment process in 1913 because of the way the rules were set up. You know, if they begin an impeachment process here, you know, we get to the point where the assembly votes to have that trial to remove the governor in the Senate. I don't think we're going to see a month long lag like we saw, you know, 108 years ago. Mm. And so what are the outlooks for a potential impeachment that would start in the assembly? Well, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to have this investigation and it's going to proceed, you know, expeditiously is the term that the assembly speaker, Carl Hastie, has used. 
What that means, I don't really know. But they're going to hire a law firm this week to assist in the process. And this is really a fact-finding mission. You know, one of the Assembly Judiciary Committee members described it to me as, this is their effort to gather probable cause. And I think they're pretty much just making sure all their ducks are in a row before they begin a, a more formal impeachment process in terms of that actual vote. And I think it really buys the assembly leadership, Carl Hastie in particular, time to really make his move because this investigation isn't necessary to launch an impeachment proceeding, but it does have the air of this formal necessity. And so it sounds really good, but what it actually does moving forward remains to be seen. And one of the things that's a real big question is how much of it is going to be done in public? You know, for example, you would anticipate that this type of thing would have public hearings, for example. But, you know, with such a sensitive topic, there might be an interest in having more of this done privately because this is such a sensitive nature and, you know, people might not feel comfortable talking in such a public setting. And turning back to the attorney general's investigation on this, how do you see New York's process for investigating sexual harassment, especially when it comes to a governor? Is it um, something that has already been well thought out, or maybe this situation is bringing light to the fact that it might need more polishing. This whole experience underscores the lack of a concrete, formal process for investigating allegations of sexual harassment against the governor. Now, if we can remember back to December, we had this tweet from Lindsey Boylan. She's a Democrat running for Manhattan Borough president, and she put out this tweet, kind of vague, suggesting that the governor was guilty of some sort of sexual misconduct and nothing happened. And a couple of months later, we get a much more descriptive release from Lindsey Boylan, which really kicked all of this off. At the time, I asked a member of the Sexual Harassment Working Group, how should this allegation, this, this tweet, be handled? Because right now, nothing's happening. You know, there are people asking some vague questions in the media, and that's about it. And the member of the Sexual Harassment Working Group, Erica Vladimir, said, yeah, there needs to be a process that's prescribed in law and is followed, you know, as a matter of course, that there's not just some sort of, let's leave it to a growing number of lawmakers to call for an investigation to have this. There needs to be a mechanism in state law. And that mechanism probably isn't the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, JCOPE, which is really regarded as, you know, a not very serious ethics entity in New York. You know, theoretically, that's one of the bodies that could be investigating that. But we had a 2018 example of uh, a sexual harassment allegation against a sitting senator, and that still hasn't been resolved three years later. So to think that, you know, that would be the right body is a problem. And, and what the, they made the case is that there needs to be something that just automatically kicks in. And there isn't that entity. Maybe there will be in the wake of this. Before we sign off, what else do we need to know about what's going on in the state capitol or with Cuomo right now? Well, I think what's important to understand here is that this is coming at a pretty big time in the state's history in terms of this broad scope of dealing with a pandemic, but also this annual process of passing a budget. The state budget is due in two weeks, and that's a process that has almost always been hammered out by the Senate leader the assembly leader and the governor sitting in a room and just banging out the big picture problems that uh, separate them so they can reach an agreement. How is the governor going to sit down with the Senate Majority Leader, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, who's called for his resignation, and Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie, who's leading an impeachment investigation into the governor? 
How does he sit down with them and negotiate? How do they sit down with him? I mean, these are some big questions that uh, remain to be seen in the next two weeks. And as you know, we've seen already, there was some reporting by Keisha Kluke of Bloomberg News that their governor appeared ready to deal on the issue of marijuana legalization. So is he going to be ready to sell out the whole store you know, to get Democrats to sort of back off him on this impeachment and resignation issue by giving them concessions on other legislative areas that they're interested in? That could be a possibility over the next couple of weeks as well. So there's that. And like I said at the beginning, there's the whole pandemic that he needs to battle. And we saw over the weekend recently how the vaccine response may have been a little intermingled with efforts to lock up the governor's political support. So there are so many moving pieces, which is one of the big reasons why there is this call for the governor to resign and let Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul handle all this. I like that you mentioned there's so many moving pieces right now. I've, I feel like it's hard to keep up with all the news stories that are coming out right now and all the moving pieces. Um, what's a good way for somebody who is sort of semi-active and uh, listening to the news to, to not get overwhelmed by what's going on and, and stay focused on what's important? Well, obviously, they should listen to the Capitol Press Room, which is available to stream at wcny.org slash the Capitol Press Room or download wherever you get your podcasts. But I mean, the best thing is always to subscribe to your local newspaper. Uh, They are either going to have their own team of state reporters covering this or they're going to be running the best of the, you know, Associated Press coverage or the New York Times coverage. And and I think that's all all you need to, to get. I mean, at this point, the governor's not going anywhere today or tomorrow, he says. So I don't think you need to stay up to the minute with the coverage. But I, I think it makes sense to check in every day with your uh, local newspaper and uh, whatever we've covered on the Capitol Press Room that day. While you're here, is there any other um, stories that might be of interest to, to listeners that you're doing right now? Well, right now we are fleshing out the one-house budgets that the majorities in the legislature have introduced, and these really represent their bargaining positions, I would say, with the governor, their hopes and dreams that they want to advance in that final budget. So we are talking to experts in sort of the different subject areas, as well as the uh, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, to get a better idea of where they stand on all these issues. So that way we kind of have a better idea of where the final budget might end up. Thank you so much, David Lombardo, host of the Capitol Press Room on WCNY Radio, for joining us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine today to talk about Cuomo and, and New York politics as they stand. Well, thank you for having me, Spencer. I hope that I reached that level of elation that you were talking about uh, at the start of the interview. That was Spencer Keeble's interview with David Lombardo, host of the Capitol Press Room, and you can find his, um, you can find more of his work online. Our HMM roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, interviewed Hudson Valley Community College professor Tamu Chambers about her 365 days a year Black History educational video project. This is segment part three of three. I noticed that when I was uh, in your class, one of your classes at Hudson Valley, that you, uh, the students did a video, did a video which was very, very good. Now, tell me why do you think that doing these videos are effective in terms of reaching students and teaching them about, you know, our history? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that too, um, Yark Willie, because um, chalk and talk has gone by the the wayside. Um, We have to, as I said, we have to reach students where they are, um, Yark, today. Mm -hmm. And so with many, um, uh, and I had 
unfortunately come to this realization that many of our students, they really are um, not efficient with reading or understanding. So what we need to do is have a combination um, of both. It's they, um, w- w- with reading and then you know, like having a video, and that encourages them to want to do both. Because in the video, and I always use the academic ones, you know, like of course, and in the video, it really helps them to understand the, um, the topic that mm-hmm. we just went over yeah. or the topic that was just, um, you know, I agree, um, you know, um, that was just introduced. So for this generation, um, you need to always come up with something that's different, something that's a little bit more exciting in order to keep their attention. Right? Just one last question I want to ask you, you know, because students are at home now. And got a lot of time, you know, if, we was in, if they was in school, they'll be running all over the place, you know, if they get out of class and doing other things. But they're at home. And they're wondering, well, what kind of books or resources should they be looking at or reading to get to know their history? Well, I, I, that's a, you know, like another um, you know, question mm-hmm. uh, that it's, um, has a multiplicity right. of ways. Well, yes, on, the know, name, name of some books or some resources that they could, access, could get access to. Oh, well, we always have um, you know, like the library, um, you know, like clearly. Mm-hmm. And, and just about all of the libraries now, they have um, you know, like the appropriate um, books for black history. Um, many of the colleges you certainly have the books mm-hmm. um, you know, for black history you know, as well. And um, with so many that are now using um, you know, their computers, there um, are so many um, oh, uh, African-American um, you know, programs that they can, uh, or books or readings mm-hmm. that they can also um, get online. For example, anything that you want to know um, more about, um, you know, like Martin Luther King and a lot of the, as they said, a lot of the books, same thing too with, um, or Malcolm X. They could just, you know, like certainly having access, uh, you know, like to um, online materials, that is, you know, like definitely a great way mm-hmm. um, to do it. And as you know, too, it depends on the parents um, also um, to help to lead them. Um, in that way uh, as well. And I know on our campus, for example, or just about all the campuses, they do have, or students have access um, to the book. So uh, that's always, you know, like a great way to do that. And some of the videos, PBS is another excellent way mm-hmm. for Gates, yeah, they're having something now uh, about the black church. I, I use many of uh, the uh, programs there for um, black history, mm-hmm. uh, for African-American history. And uh, yes, and so Gates is one of the premier, Dr. Gates, um, he's one of the premier um, authors there um, and on PBS. All, all, all topics, um, he has already um, done that or greatly contributed. And if it's not being shown on PBS uh, right now because of the changes, you can um, clearly get it um, in the libraries um, as well. Well, they still got that COVID thing in, in some of the libraries. You can't get in there, you know, you, or you have to make appointments now. Yeah, and, um, and, and also if you have your card, um, you know, like as well. So those are some ways you like to do it to access the books um, also. So you can see what they do have um, available online. And that's the beauty of, you know, of our um, country, you know, like anyway. Um, and the creativity, because one of the things that um, that they're doing at SUNY in general, reimagining our education because of you know because of COVID, and so therefore 
with the librarians and um, what they do. Um, now they make sure that um, much of the information is online. So if you have your library card, um, you know, certainly you can still access um, right. you know, like some of the you know, like the readings, you know, I like, can so forth. So, yeah, those are, right. that's another you know, excellent way. Right. Um, and, you know, and colleges have some of the best uh, libraries, too, because they got a lot of information. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. With our students, um, for example, um, you know, like at HBCC, is similar, you know, like to just about all of you know, like colleges. Um, you know, like virtually, they can get all the information they need to write their papers. Right. Uh, and Ms. Chambers, uh, I want to thank you for this interview, but I want to say that Black History is not just February. Black History is 365 days a year, right? Well, the same, yes, <laughs> right? and it's the same yeah. thing as I was mentioning earlier. Um, you know, like, William, that's why I tied both of them together. Mm -hmm. Same with Kwanzaa. Right. Um, those are the practices that we should do, um, you know, with the, uh, the seven principles, you know, like for Kwanzaa. We should live and breathe that, you know, like throughout the year. So with the combination, like with both of um, those, with, um, with Black History Month, you know, like and so forth, um, obviously these are two gifts um, that were, um, you know, like given, um, you know, like to us. And we should take advantage of that. You just don't do it on one single day, one single month. Um, it's something that you want to integrate in your life for a more fruitful um, you know, like life um, style. And I think that uh, these gifts that have been, you know, like given to us, as I mentioned, by these uh, amazing, um, you know, like leaders, uh, we should obviously, you know, like honor, uh, which we do, I think many of us do, <laughs> uh, Martin Luther King, and also as my students, you know, like point out, uh, individuals such as, um, you know, like Malcolm, because he always encourages, quote, for men, it was really important um, and what it takes to be a male and the, with the responsibilities um, and, and that sort of stuff. Mulana Karenga, certainly, um, when he uh, discovered um, what was wrong or a problem that we have, or many African Americans do it during the riots there, um, you know, like in uh, California or Watts. And so, and that's what he did. He um, he investigated and he found out that we didn't really understand a lot about our culture. And so that pretty much um, uh, helped all of us um, understand why um, his principles or that they should become, you know, like our principles are so, um, you know, like significant. And of course, the founder of um, you know, like Black um, you know, like History, um, you know, like Month, you know, like as well. And uh, so these are things, you know, like, and you started out, as you know, um, with a single um, uh, a single week, and then um, eventually um, it becomes, you know, like a month. And so, and then uh, other people are always, you know, like arguing, well, not just a month, people, always remember that you should honor it all year. Mm -hmm. You know, I brought this up for, for a reason, because uh, next month, month March, is, is Women History Month. And it's yes. a lot to, of black women to talk about, things to talk about black women for Black History Month. And uh, I'll probably be calling you to interview you again about some issues that black women have uh, played played in the uh, March Women History Month. Yeah, I'm um, like absolutely. I've done edu dramas on mm -hmm. um, on Women History Month. I'm um, like also, I'm mm -hmm. um, like Willie, and you know the dichotomy between um, you like Women History Month. There's White Women History Month. And there's um, Black Women History Month because the challenges, you know, like we, although clearly um, women in general 
have um, you know, suffered um, you know, greatly just because of their gender. However, um, with uh, black women, we know that um, you know, certainly it's a double um, you know, right. jeopardy that they experience. So, yes, um, you know, absolutely. Right. I want you to um, save that because when I call you, I want you to tell me all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I want yeah, to, I yeah that, that, that's, that I really want to, you know, uh, do something for uh, Women's History Month. And uh, I'll, I'll be calling you about that. Uh, oh yeah, I have a one. Oh, you know something? I don't. I don't think I did it in class, but uh, there's an amazing poem about black women mm-hmm. that I would love to share, and um, so that people get a better, you know, like understanding um, of the, you know, like of the history, you know, like certainly. So yeah. Right. Um, so that's a wonderful. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. I'll be ready for you. Oh okay. <laughs> All right, and the same. Thanks again uh, for, okay. for the interview. And now, and I look forward to interviewing you again for Women History Month, probably for some other other months too, because uh, you know the knowledge that you uh, have. Thanks again. Oh, you're welcome, Willie. Thank you. You just heard the final segment of HMM's roaming labor course by HMM's roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry. His conversation with Hudson Valley Community College professor Tamu Chambers about her educational video project, 365 Days a Year Black History. Find the whole interview on our website at mediasanctuary.org. For those just tuning in, I'm Jody. And I'm Sina, and you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOC 105.3 FM Troy, WOOS 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOA 106.9 FM Albany, and WCAA 107.3 FM Albany. To learn more about the Hudson Mohawk Magazine program, to listen online, and to learn how to support the Sanctuary for Independent Media, check us out online at mediasanctuary.org or get in touch with us through email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Like many people across the country, Amy Wagner baked a lot in the early days of the pandemic and gave a lot of her own baked items away. Her cinnamon rolls were so popular among her family and friends that they encouraged her to start her own business, so she did. Amy opened up Roly-Poly Buns and Stuff, an online home bakery, and now accepts orders for pickup and delivery. Self-proclaimed apple aficionado, apple fritter aficionado, and HMM correspondent Corinne Carey spoke with Amy about her business and her approach to creating the perfect apple fritter. These and other baked goods can be ordered by visiting rolypolybuns.com. Amy, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to me today. Oh, definitely. Thank you for inviting me. What made you think to start a business in the middle of a global pandemic? (laughs) It was actually just a random decision I made one night. I had recently been trying out a bunch of different baking recipes. I've, I've baked for fun most of my life, but I had been furloughed for a few months at the start of the pandemic. I tried out a bunch of new recipes and my friends and family were really big fans of these cinnamon rolls I started making and these apple fritters I started making. And jokingly, a few times people had been like, oh man, Amy, you could really sell these. And so one night I was bored and just looked up on New York State's website, how to be an at-home bakery. And it turns out it's really easy to set that up. And so I did almost entirely on impulse. And it, was it, it was a difficult process or did the state make it easy for you? For being an at-home bakery, which falls under cottage bakery laws, you really have to fill out a piece of paper that says your business name and specifically what you're making. And then you send it to them and they approve it. And then you're an at-home bakery. Ta-da. 
<laughs> the only weird restrictions is they don't allow people to make a lot of different baked goods, anything that needs refrigeration. I think you can't set your own chocolate. You can't have uncooked nuts. It's like a whole bunch of random restrictions, but um, I did clarify with them that the things I was making were a-okay. The cinnamon rolls and fritters, a-okay. Yep. <laughs> Now, are those your favorite things to bake and eat? Or is that just what really got your friends and family excited? Honestly, I think my favorite things for me personally to bake and eat are some of the custard pies that my Nana taught me when I was a kid. As those need to be refrigerated, though, I cannot sell those out of my house. But I have had a lot of fun playing with the cinnamon rolls because I started with a base recipe. It's dates, cinnamon, sugar inside of this dough. But I've had so much fun experimenting and trying to come up with new flavors and figure out what else I can add in them, how to create them. Like, I think it took me three or four iterations to figure out how to properly do a s'mores roll because they kept like falling apart or like all the chocolate would ooze out or different things like that. So a lot of the fun has just been in playing, coming up with an idea, trying to figure out how it can work and then testing it with my friends and family to see if it actually tastes any good. So you have to be honest with me, Amy. Do you eat your mistakes? Oh, absolutely. Some, <laughs> some of the best things, I think one time I was making s'mores rolls for someone and I cover the top with marshmallows and then I broil it for a very small amount of time just to brown the marshmallows. And of course I walked away while I was broiling, set the whole thing on fire. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I couldn't give that to the person I was selling them to and how to remake them. But once you scraped all the burnt stuff off, they were still pretty good. So we ate them at home. So you don't just eat the mistakes, you eat the disasters. <laughs> pretty much. As long as they're salvageable, someone will eat them. <laughs> you mentioned your Nana. Where does your love of baking come from? Oh, definitely from her. Growing up, she and I would always make pies and desserts and stuff for holidays and for birthdays. Still to this day, my the cake I make for myself every year is her chocolate cake recipe. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of weird techniques from her that as an adult, I've learned are maybe not the proper ways to like mix things or roll things out, but it works. And it's like part of my upbringing. So I like doing things a little sillily. Can you give me an example of one of her weird techniques? Oh, so what drives my boyfriend a little crazy is that apparently there is a proper way when you're mixing batter together, that you like, you cream your butter and sugar, you alternate your dries and your wets. I just, I mix everything all together at once. I don't, <laughs> I don't really care. Things still turn out okay, so I roll with it, but it drives my boyfriend crazy and he cannot be in the kitchen when I'm baking. What makes a good apple fritter? So I really like to have a good amount of fruit inside of it fried to like just slight dark brown because it gives it kind of a crunchy outside but a really soft inside and like a little bit of good spice. Mine have mace or nutmeg in them depending on the day but it adds a, enough of a, a kick behind them to make it a little bit more interesting. Is a home business like this sustainable for you? It fits into my life very well as I really don't leave the house much at all since the pandemic has started. Fortunately I've been able to get the first part of my vaccine. And so I imagine I will be able to go outside and participate in more of a normal life. I normally curl in the winters, which also takes up a lot of my time. 
I am a little worried how much time I will have going forward to keep pursuing this, but I enjoy it so much. I've always enjoyed baking, but having a chance to bake for strangers essentially has been so much fun that it's it's really important for me to try to continue doing this. And so far, it's been fine doing it from home because any spare time I have can go towards the business. I don't know if ever one day I'll be able to move into a physical space, but for right now, this is working pretty well for me. Curling. Do you mean this, the Olympic sport curling that people yep. in Canada do? You do it here too? Yes. Yes. Over at the Albany Curling Club is where I belong. The club took this entire year off from 2020 into 2021, but hopefully the way things are trending, we should be able to open up again in September, October, like we normally do. Now, I don't know if someone would consider me an apple fritter aficionado, but I do appreciate an apple fritter that has the right kind of density So one of the things that I really love about an apple fritter is when you see that the dough has been folded over through the apple so that when you bite it, you get enough dough and enough fruit. Do you pay attention to that when you're baking fritters? Oh, definitely. Yes. The whole process for making fritters is almost a little hysterically messy because it's rolling out the dough into about a square, filling it with the apple pieces and cinnamon folding it over. And then I take a bench scraper and I just cut it into so many tiny pieces and you cut it and you scrape it and you fold it over and you smush it all together until you get like a really good mix of dough versus apples. And then like rolling them out into fritter shapes that I get to fry then. How can folks get your baked goods? All of my baked goods are on my website at rollypullybuns.com. We do deliveries on weekends or people can pick them up during the week whenever they want. Hopefully this summer I will be at some farmer's markets, but I'm still working on that detail. It's tempting to want to order a single apple fritter and ask for it to be delivered. (laughs) (laughs) That's not possible, is it? You can definitely order one apple fritter and pay for delivery on it if you would like that. I always recommend maybe buying a couple more than that just to make it worth it, but you can definitely just buy one. I mean, if you think about it, why would you buy just one apple fritter? That tends to be how I feel about a lot of big goods. <laughs> why just have one? You can always save one for later. Exciting. Well, I, I hope you keep baking and I'm looking forward to sampling one or more of your apple fritters. <laughs> yeah, I really hope you enjoy them. You just heard HMM correspondent Corinne Carey speaking with Amy Wagner about her new business. To sample some of these delicious apple fritters we just heard about and other baked goods, visit her website at rollypolybuns.com. That's R-O-L-L-Y-P-O-L-Y-B-U-N-S.com. HMM correspondent Steve Pierce recently spoke with Darian Lemen and Leslie Hannon Producers with the weekly program Reclaiming the Narrative at WXIR Community Radio in Rochester, New York, about the history of the show and their efforts to bring alternative news programming to the listeners. Okay, on the phone we have Darian Lehman and Leslie Hannon from WXIR Community Radio in Rochester. Welcome aboard. Uh, You are both producers at Reclaiming the Narrative. Can you tell us a bit about that program? Sure. Reclaiming the Narrative started uh, three years ago this month with our first local weekly news broadcast. 
Um, we, our mission is to uplift the stories that mainstream media doesn't cover or doesn't cover uh, adequately. And um, our goal was to invite community producers, people with an interest in reporting um, on the issues affecting our community, uh, invite them in, uh, train them up if they needed training and get them reporting. So uh, we've been running for three years now and it's been a pretty exciting ride. I glanced through your archives and uh, uh, I didn't see a full set of uh, shows. Did you uh, Have you been consistently producing for every week? For three years? We have, for the most part. Um, sometimes in the summer, uh, you know, I'm a staff member um, at WXIR, and we do a lot of summer programs with youth. So we take a little break sometimes in the summer. But uh, we do, we kind of migrated our archive from Mixcloud over to SoundCloud at one point. So we're still working on um, populating that, that archive from our first year. Yeah, the reason I ask is that it's sort of, uh, you know, notoriously difficult to produce uh, consistent programming with uh, particularly production-intensive programming like news with uh, an all-volunteer crew. So it's impressive. You've been doing it for three years. That's awesome. Any challenges in particular you faced? Yeah, I think, as you point out, um, being able to uh, develop uh, volunteer reporters who, you know, have day jobs, have lives, uh, have responsibilities, um, and keep them coming back. I think we're we're at a point where, you know, the the show is almost entirely produced by volunteers. I, as you know, the the staff producer, I'm the backstop, and so whatever needs to be produced for a given week, I'll I'll step in. But um, we're at a point now where we've got seven regular contributors for our uh, once a week, half hour show. Um, all hands on deck all the time. Uh, we're really uh, we're really running full steam now, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I listened to a couple of your most recent segments, and it's uh, impressively produced, and I was really struck by the range of uh, different production styles you were using, ranging from like a first-person narrative to uh, uh, this great art project from the, uh, from the, from the museum there, I think. Uh, and then the, the the news stories as well. What are the kinds of segments that you that you do? We we're um, uh, uh, we're speaking to Darian here and also Leslie. Uh, you guys are both uh, producers of particular segments. Yeah. Uh, so I I have been again you know filling in where where uh, we need to fill in. Um, but we try to figure out what each uh, contributor is interested in and passionate about. And you know Leslie has kind of done a little bit of everything. Um, and most recently has been producing uh, feature segments. Um, she could certainly talk about uh, the mutual aid segment that she had she developed and and produced for the last few weeks. Um, but but her her interests and experience I think are much even even wider ranging than that. Yeah, most recently um, I covered some mutual aid uh, organizations that have been cropping up in Rochester since the start of the pandemic. Um, you know, meeting the needs of the community. Um, I feel passionate about covering things that maybe might not be covered otherwise, and you know, kind of the unsung heroes in the community. Uh, I started as a photographer just doing what I was passionate about anyways and connected just kind of randomly to WXIR and have been reporting ever since. Uh, the mutual aid piece was of particular interest to me and I like that freedom about it. <clears throat> if I see something in the community that I you know, find passionate in, I can go to Darian and say, hey, you know, this is going on, I'd like to cover it. And there's this freedom to, to do that 
um, instead of having, you know, assignments and deadlines and a lot of pressure. And I think that's a, a good appeal to a lot of people that get into this. So you have a mixture of breaking news and more featurey things uh, to, to fill out the show each week? That's right. So our top half is we typically do uh, kind of news briefs uh, a la Democracy Now!, um, which was one of the big models for for this show. Um, we go on and do some breaking news coverage. Um, and then the second half of the show, uh, we do features, uh, arts and culture, um, that kind of thing. I noticed that there's uh, quite a few low-power FMs in Rochester. Uh, it seems like uh, it's, uh, it's a wide range of approaches that the stations are taking. Uh, is your uh, program aired on other stations in Rochester? We are, and we're we're super excited about um, that. You know, you're right that there are actually four, um, if uh, if my count is correct, there are four low-power FMs um, that started all around the same time about three years ago uh, in Rochester. And, you know, we've over the years tried to get some collaborations going and, and we're really excited that Reclaiming the Narrative um, is aired on WAYO 104.3 uh, as well. And um, we're, we're excited that Rochester is a vibrant community media town. Um, it's a town that like other uh, places, especially in the Rust Belt, um, has been devastated by, you know, media downsizing, um, you know, the, the main paper of record here running on a skeleton crew for many years. So, you know, the, the need for community needs for community news is great. Um, and the interest in people that people have in producing that news themselves uh, is great as well. So, so we're so happy that we're able to to fill that need, and that we have partners uh, in other community stations that that are also uh, uh, picking up our show. We're speaking uh, to Darian Lehman and Leslie Hannon from WXIR Community Radio in Rochester, New York. They are uh, both active in the Reclaiming the Narrative public affairs show that airs weekly on WXIR and also uh, other stations in the Rochester area. What do you uh, what do you see as being the key stories that need coverage uh, in Rochester? Uh, Leslie, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, right now, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, is is really important to be covering, especially with recent events. Um, with the man that was uh, shot outside the open door mission just last week. Um, there seems to be a history of, of issues between the police and the community. And um, I feel that there's some true change on the brink of happening here. And community media is a huge part of that. And I feel like um, it's important to convey different sides of the story that people might not see in other outlets. We hear a lot about the police issues in Rochester, and uh, that seems like a, a key thing that we could be sharing between cities because I think we feel isolated here. So we're, you know, we're obviously not the only ones facing these problems, but uh, it would be such a strength if we could share strategies and organizing uh, tactics. So uh, hopefully we can maintain a relationship with you guys and, and share programming on the issues that are of um, concern between the cities. Um, and also, Rochester is just such an amazing cultural city. For a city its size, it's, it's, it's incredible. I don't know why, why. Do you know why it's, it's like that? It's been like that for many years, right? 
Yeah, I, I mean, as um, as a media person, you know, I trace our our rich history of media activism back to Frederick Douglass, um, who founded the North Star newspaper here uh, in the in the 1840s. Um, and there's a rich history of Black-owned newspaper and Black-owned media. Um, obviously, uh, the town of Eastman Kodak as well. So visual media. Um, is very important uh, in the history of this city as well. So um, I think there's a lot of factors uh, at, at play. So where do you, uh, you said uh, Reclaiming the Narrative has been airing for three years now. Where do you see yourself being or yourselves being in, uh, in three years? It's a really great question. I mean, uh, hopefully uh, we can continue to expand our programming, uh, jump up to 60 60 whole minutes, um, that would be amazing. Um, you know, bring in interns, uh, be able to pay people uh, to help uh, produce the show. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could do. And, um, you know, I think the, the support that we've been slowly building uh, over these years uh, is finally kind of reaching that critical point where it feels like we're on the brink of being, you know, uh, sustainable and, and able to make that, that jump to the next level. So uh, I'm hopeful. Um, I don't know how how Leslie as a new contributor kind of feels about, um, you know, the prospects for con for keeping going with this and, and where she'd like to go. But um, I I'm hopeful that uh, she's she's excited and, and willing to take on more projects as well. Yeah, I definitely see myself continuing on. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of this stuff was things I was doing anyways, things that kind of uh, already had ideas that were in my head. And so um, finding community media was such a great outlet for that. And I definitely plan on continuing, you know, as long as I can. Well, Leslie Hannon, uh, Darian Lehman, thanks so much. Keep it going at Reclaiming the Narrative. We'll be listening. <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much. Love hearing about what other community radio stations are doing. That's fantastic. That was producers Darian Lehman and Leslie Hannon of Rochester's WXIR community radio program, reclaiming the narrative, speaking with HMM correspondent Steve Pierce. And you can find out more about that show and explore their archive at www.reclaimingthenarrative.org. Lastly tonight, we have a segment from the ACT series, which are created by the students of the Spring 21 Art Community Technology class at RPI. We'll hear from Jessica Bowen, the Community Engagement Coordinator at Troy's, Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, interviewed by Hannah Namath. Uh, Troy Savings Bank Music Hall is a not-for-profit performing arts center located here in Troy. Lastly, we will hear from Jessica Bowen, the Community Engagement Coordinator at Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, interviewed by Hannah Namath. Troy Savings Bank Music Hall is a not-for-profit performing arts center located here in Troy. Hi, Jessica, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, Hannah, thanks so much, uh, firstly, for taking the time to, to carve out in the schedule this interview um, with me. Um, my name is Jessica Bowen. Um, I am the Community Engagement Coordinator at the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. Um, and what I primarily do in my role is work to bring diversified education programs to students in the Troy area and throughout the capital region, as well as work to engage our community in the arts programming that we provide at the hall. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, the first question we'd like to ask you is, what is your organization's main message and how has that message impacted your community? That's a really great question. So one of the 
the main missions of our organization is to provide an avenue for the expression of the arts in our community through varied programming um, and performances with artists from all around the world. Um, so, of course, one of our main goals is to to bring a diverse, a diversified uh, audience base into the hall to to be exposed to all different kinds of music. So that's that's number one. And then number two is to to work to engage our community and to break down the barriers that we see in in the arts world. So engaging everyone in our community on some aspect to, to bring arts into into their lives. Yeah, that's really amazing. Um, oh, sorry. Um, so have you faced any big challenges while trying to achieve these goals that you were talking about? Well, absolutely. Um, and I suppose that can be sort of broken down into to two aspects, of course. <laughs> There's pre-pandemic and then pandemic times, which is a totally different ball game, right? So um, one of the, the main troubles that we face is, is having folks not really see the music hall as a place where they might fit in or, or be welcome, especially in the Troy community specifically. Um, there can sometimes be a divide between what the interpretation is and what we do versus who can be there and of course we try to we've tried to emphasize that you know what we do is for everyone and everyone in the community and we've tried to find ways to to expand what we do so that everybody will will feel welcome and will break down those barriers a few of those things um include not only having performers come in from all disciplines, but also providing access to everybody so that there are no financial barriers, there are no transportation or or um, geological barriers that might exist for people to have access to really world stage artists and art opportunities, musical opportunities. Um, we've done that with the community at large and also in our education programs to provide workshops master classes and ongoing classes and clubs with local schools that might not have the avenues to do so in their own budgeting. So we've been able to work really closely with those those schools to to bring those opportunities to students who might not otherwise have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, that's great. It's really nice to see that you're breaking down these barriers that might have been present in the past. Um, so you talked about how the, the community has been affected due to the pandemic. So what has your organization been doing to help besides? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Did it cut out? It did a little bit at the end. Oh, sorry. So fine. how has the community been affected due to the, due to the pandemic and what has the organization done? to aid them. Gotcha. Yeah, the, the pandemic has been difficult for everybody. I don't think that's that's a surprise to anyone. Uh, so, so making the transition, um, especially on an education level with our programs has been a almost a complete overhaul of what our programs have done. Um, in the past, we'd have students come into the hall to, to work with artists or to see an educational performance or we'd have our 
our program partners, our artists in the area, go out to the schools for our outreach programs. Um, and of course, all of that can't happen anymore. Um, and we want to be as safe as we can. So we've moved all of those things to a virtual, virtual platform. Uh, so some of the things we've been able to do is those programs that were in person, we've worked with schools to be able to provide those virtually and work with schools to to make sure that students are still getting access to these great activities in the arts, um, even when uh, we're we have to be apart. Uh, so we've been able to develop these virtual programs um, and bring them to students. So some of those include performances. We have a wonderful, wonderful um, wind quintet in residency uh, this, this year called Quintocracy. And we are working on bringing a, a virtual education series of performances um, this spring uh, with them. And we've been able to work with other organizations and artists in the area to bring workshops and classes to students in drumming in dance, all from Zoom or Google Meet. So our artists have been wonderfully flexible in designing these programs and the schools and students have been so receptive to that as well. Um, one of the things we've also had to do, of course, in our presenting side is to move everything to a, a live stream format. So one of the great things about that is, um, if you can say that, is that we've been able to work really closely with a lot of local artists and feature them as a part of our live stream performances. Um, our most recent upcoming one is going to be um, the the Wheel, which is a local local rock band, and they're going to be performing at the end of February. So we'll have an exciting opportunity to feature them uh, at the end of the month. And we just finished up um, a live stream performance with that wind quintet that I I mentioned. And those are all happening at at the hall or safely from the musicians' homes. Um, we always try to maintain or ensure to maintain social distancing and to make that make that work while still hopefully providing some uh, some entertainment for folks who who are at home right now. Yeah, that's great. It seems like you've been able to adjust to the pandemic really nicely. And would you say that you've had any unique opportunities arise? I know that you mentioned that there's a lot of local artists, but have you been able to work more nationwide or even internationally? Yeah, we've definitely been able to to work to expand the breadth of what what we do. One of the the main things that's unique about the hall is a lot of artists will come to record record in the hall. Um, it's something that we've done in the past, especially with the Albany Symphony. We'll do a lot of their recordings uh, at the hall. Um, but in this time, since since artists aren't performing quite as much, we've been able to to have a lot of artists come in um, from all around the country to record in our space. Um, so while that's something that we didn't quite foresee being such a strong part of what we do, it's something that's that's really become um, a unique benefit to to our uh, our pandemic situation is, is having those <laughs> artists come in and and record um, for their for upcoming albums and whatnot and uh, musical works at the hall. So that's been really, really neat. Um, we've also been able to, of course, present our our live streams to, to everybody that might come across the, uh, the, the link to do so. So um, 
our performances aren't, you know, just based on whether or not you're close to the music hall anymore, but rather, you know, as long as you can, you can get on the internet, then you can, you can view our performances. So we've been able to see, you know, a few, few sputterings of, of folks chiming in from, from all over the, the world in the country, which is really great. Yeah, that's good to see that you're expanding both your audience as well as the people that come in and present. Um, I was also wondering if you've been having any or how your funding and donations have been affected during COVID. Yeah, well, that's definitely been a unique situation, as most of all of this is has been uh, during the, the pandemic. So our audience base and our 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 donations have been so generous. The community has really just been so generous and understanding throughout this time. Uh, we've seen so many donations, so many supportive messages, so many folks in the community who are willing and so kind as to support us during this time and who are super excited to, to see what we're continuing to do and looking forward to when we can safely open our doors again. So um, we're super grateful for how the community um, has, has been so supportive through this time, even though what we're doing right now doesn't look like what we've done for 145 years. And um, that's really what's kept us alive during this time is the, the really amazing and um, loving support we've seen from the community. Yeah, it's really interesting how the music hall has changed for the better, I guess you could say. So is there anything that you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you yet? Yeah, well, I, I, I could really talk for days about <laughs> all this stuff that we do. Um, yeah, I mean, our our education programs are something that, you know, we really value and work to work to include as a primary part of what we do. And that's, that's what I spend most of my time doing. Um, and, you know, we've just had a lot of exciting opportunities, even through this pandemic, uh, that have really taught us a lot and given us many avenues for, for expanding what we do. So um, just really excited to be able to share a little bit of that uh, with you guys here. No, thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you for stopping by. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Again, it was great to speak with you. We just heard RPI student Hannah McNemeth speaking with Community Engagement Coordinator at Troy Savings Music Hall, um, Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, Jessica Bowen. HMM would like to congratulate Amy Albany Sympathy musicians David Allen Miller and Richard O'Neill on their 2021 Grammy Award win for Best Music Classical Instrument Solo for a performance which was recorded at the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall in 2018. That's very cool. All right, and that concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Jody. And I'm Sina, also your engineer. Remember to tune in every weekday to get your daily dose of local news. You can also get that dose on demand through our Hudson Mohawk Magazine podcast and Facebook page. If you have comments, questions, or comment on our work, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. As a reminder, the Hudson Mohawk Magazine is produced by local volunteers. If you're interested in helping out with our radio effort, shoot us an email at info at mediasanctuary.org or join our weekly virtual Zoom meetings on Monday nights at 7.07 p.m. by sending an email requesting an invitation link to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>